Yeah, Kendrick Lamar, DNA. Um, Pulitzer Prize winner receiving his award today. And a very exciting photograph of him with all the Pulitzer Prize winners. And he's the, strangely, only black person in the picture. How about that? Uh, congratulations to him. And uh, let's see here. He flew to New York to accept, a, for uh, let's see, the first time a non-classical or a jazz artist won the distinction. In other words, they've given it to jazz artists and they've given it to classical artists, but never to a hip-hop artist. So, hooray, hurrah. Once again, the smartest man in the world, Proofcast, takes you to ether here from the Sluby's confines of Melania's secret fortress located somewhere on the eastern seaboard. Normally, we broadcast from the Porpoise of Fruititude, but Melania has been so kind and so giving. It's part of the Be First movement that uh, she's allowed us to Be join best. us here. What was it? Be Best. Be Best? Is that what it is? Oh. Is that grammatically correct? <laughs> You know what? Never mind. English is probably not her first language. She speaks so many languages. She's in the she's in the kitchen right now making canapes and um, whipping something up. And uh, and she's just been lovely to us the whole time we've been here. And by the way, nothing's wrong with her, and she's feeling great. I don't know if you saw her tweet uh, recently. Uh, she tweeted this week. She strangely channeled um, Orange Forty Five's voice in her tweet, which I think was to make it all simpler for all of us. Um, anyway, no one's seen her in public for the last couple of years, and it's been it's been nice. It's 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 really normal. It's as normal as having um. Uh, uh, a, a leader who uh, d doesn't give press conferences but every once in a while goes to some weird redneck auditorium and yells a bunch of lies at a crowd who then scream at the press and then evidently shake hands with all of them afterward and while Daniel Dale was quoted as saying how come you're yelling um, fake news and then you shook my hand after and the woman went that's just what we do here so there you go uh, Ronan Farrow also received um, a Pulitzer Prize which is the Academy Award of print um and uh, for his excellent, excellent work in outing Harvey Weinstein and um, shedding a great deal of light on sexual predators in this country. The Washington Post also received their entire editorial staff. Uh, the, a lot of the political people uh, received a Pulitzer Prize and well done them. Notice it wasn't the New York Times. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Maggie Haberman's here too, by the way. Uh, she's uh, in the other room. She's just whipping up this anchovy thing that she does. Um, I said, um, you weren't going to use lemon juice and then you use lemon juice. And she said, it's just misleading. You know, she would she wouldn't really cop to it. So anyway, her and I have been buttonheads all afternoon. But uh, Melania is absolutely um, she's fabulous. And she's wearing, I think, what appears to be a Dolce and Gabbana number. Um, I don't know what her kidney's wearing. That seems to be a separate issue. The kidney has his own dish. Uh, it seems to be a designer dish. It might have been kind of a, you know, a Versace. There's like a gold trim around it and whatnot. Anyway, uh, it's so exciting to be um here uh, being hosted by Melania um, you know the, the decor here in her secret lair is much like the decor she did at Christmas time it's kind of like nightmare before Memorial Day there's uh, dead firecrackers everywhere and there's uh, just uh, blanched cattle skulls laying on the ground pools of alkali and bizarre oblong black shapes um, they kind of give it that holiday summer feel there's nothing like summer in Melania's mind and this is what we're celebrating right now it's the summer of Melania's mind and let's all take a walk in the labyrinth of, uh, of excitement that that entails um, we'll be at the Negro Leagues Museum uh, on Saturday the 9th, is it? Does anyone know what day that is? Melania? Ah, she can't hear me. I would ask Maggie, but you know what? She'd probably fib about what day it was just for practice. Am I right or am I right, people? Um, on the 9th of June, we'll be at the Negro League Museum. It is? It is a Saturday. See, I know some things. I know two things. Um, that I hated that song by Chicago, even though I knew all the words to it. Um, Saturday in the park. Well, my the part that really got you is um, uh, people talking, people squanching, a man selling ice cream. Remember that part? Singing Italian songs, and then someone comes up with some bullshit Italian. Ice mare, pile care, calamare. Really, really, Chicago. I saw them in high school, and um, not when they were in high school. Not when they were in high school. That was the '40s. But I was in high school, and uh, I went with my friend Jay, um, who you may remember from the taking meth and going to see him. Um, uh, whoever we were seeing that night was it Richie Blackmore I can't remember and that was the night we almost got killed by gangsters but the point is this uh, on another night we and him went to the Cow Palace which was originally meant to store fertilizer for the entire universe and we went to see Chicago I don't know why we had tickets for Chicago this is going out to Jimmy Pardo by the way because Jimmy Pardo's favorite group is Chicago and yes and it was something Jimmy and I had, years ago when I met him we were doing a gig together at the um, Reno Catch a Rising Star and Jimmy in those days imbibed um, he's abstemious now. Um, I, of course, have carried the torch for him. I've, I've tried to drink. I try to drink his body weight in alcohol every week. So, but Jimmy and I. Jimmy was wearing like a tux. You know, it was me and him and Sean Corbell, and we were playing uh, the Catch a Rising Star in Reno, which we were talking about the other day. 
because uh, we remember the people who booked it. And um, we had a couple drinks and we were chatting about music and whatnot. And I went, who's your favorite group? And Jimmy went, Chicago. And I was like, what? And he goes, Chicago. I go, no one's favorite group is Chicago. I go, well, which album do you like best? Seven or 12, right? Because they never named their albums. Remember all their albums? The first one was called Chicago Transit Authority. And then after that, it was Chicago 2, 3, 4, 5. So anyway, um, I told Jimmy that I saw them, of course, which he was very excited about. James Pankow on trombone. And um, uh, what's his name was still in the group then. Um, Terry Kath, I think, was still alive. And D- Donnie Dacus? I'm trying to remember. Anyway, what's his name was still in the group? Peter, was it? The one who, you know I believe in you and I know you believe in me. Oh, yeah. Anyways, long story short, Jay and I were bumming so hard at the concert. We were like, and this will give you an idea of how white we were. We were like, man, I wish we were at a Peter Frampton concert. We were hoping to exchange out the uncoolness of Chicago for the coolness of Peter Frampton. Yeah, I've really exposed myself on this one. I'm going to have to tell another story very quickly to back this one up. Later, of course, I saw Bo Diddley at the Holland Berlin game, and uh, we snuck into that when we were in the bathroom. I've told this story. Anyway, there were Poe going at the end. I tried to meet Bo Diddley, but he was, he was busy at the time. Let me just put it that way. Saw him again with Lady Bo in Redwood City on a Sunday night. Just tremendous. Um, I, by the way, I've been reading a Little Richard um, biography that Mark Critch gave me, and I think it's just called Little Richard. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written in the 80s, sort of by Little Richard and sort of by other people. Like, it's a compendium. They interview all these people he worked with. Awesomely, um, the extremely important um, uh, manager and producer, Bumps Blackwell. Yes, Bumps Blackwell. He's quoted extensively in the book. Um, I'm not... Uh, gonna let anyone I know read this book because this book's more salacious than Glow about Rick James. And I'm not kidding. I thought Glow was as fucking far as you could go for complete. I mean, he's talking about um, having sex with uh, Tina Marie. And even though she was a lesbian, you know, we had sex like gross, right? And then, and, and smuggling cocaine from Colombia and the knot of his tie and shit. Like, Rick James' book is awesome, right? And then going to prison and having the older prison guy say to him, You ain't shit. Look at you now, Rick James. Like, through the whole book, right? It's just really terrific. The Little Richard book has unbelievable details, um, assignations of a manner where more than one person was involved with Buddy Holly. Yes, you heard me right. That's described in graphic detail. There's also um, uh, uh, orgies all the time. Well, we, oh, we had these lovely orgies. And right about that time, I was taking a lot of marijuana and cocaine. You're like, I can't put this down. I'm forbidding Jennifer to read it. I put a lock over the book. I'm banning all children from reading it. I can't believe it came out in the form it came out in in 1984. And then um, I, evidently, according to this book, he cured himself of homosexuality, which is an enormously successful trick. I don't know if you've ever tried to do it, but it requires standing on a chair. It's, it's very difficult. I don't know anyone who's done it. Um, so uh, I, I never saw Little Richard, but I did see Bo Diddley. And uh, Mick Jagger has a, a quote in the book. Yeah, they quote Mick Jagger. And he's like... Uh, yeah, you know, little, you know, little Richard's you know, great, you know, he's performing, you know, so that. And then, because he's Mick Jagger and he has to be a dick, you know, I really, you know, like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley, but like Little Richard. Dude, <laughs> really? More than Little Richard, who wore eye makeup and stood on the piano, took off all his clothes in the 50s and threw them into the audience? You thought they were better, did you? Well, that's interesting. And they opened for him. Of course they did. The Beatles opened for Little Richard and the Stones opened for Little Richard. Evidently, it was Paul that really loved him. I always thought it was John, according to this book. John used to um, break wind in the hotel room and uh, Little Richard did not care for that. He said, I don't like that. But Paul would gaze up at him and like just talk. And evidently, in their hotel room, he taught Paul how to go woo, right? According to this book, he says, I taught Paul how to go woo. Undeniable, irrefutable. Get it if you can. It's used. Mark Critch sent it to me. You know, Mark Critch is a friend of the show. Uh, you may remember him from such episodes as the Nova Scotia episode from several weeks ago, uh, because he lives in Buddy. St. John. He lives way the hell up there in uh, Canada and is the host of uh, This Hour Has 22 Minutes, which is a, a long standing. Um, he also has a book coming out called Son of a Critch. Yeah, I'm giving him a plug on my show. He's a good buddy and he's a really nice cat. He took me out for dinner and we had drinks and we got to talking as they were, as they say. And we started trading rock and roll stories. And um, he, he told me one that I'm going to tell on the show uh, that he hasn't given me permission to. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to have everybody who's listening to this sign an affidavit. 
he goes, him and his brother go to see Brian Wilson in Toronto, right? And he loves Brian Wilson. And um, the Beach Boys, right? Now, I can't, this is, I can't vouch for his taste. We were just telling stories at this point. So he's backstage at the Brian Wilson concert because he's kind of a star in Canada. And he gets to meet Brian Wilson. And they're like, they introduce him. He talks to, he said he talked to Mike uh, Love and he talked to uh, Al and, you know, some of the other Beach Boys, Bruce, right? They've, they've been with the band a thousand years. So he finally meets Brian. And he walks over to him and he's like, Mr. Wilson, I just want to tell you, I'm a huge fan. I adore your music. I think you're a genius. I love Pet Sounds and I love what you, you were doing with the orchestration and this and that. And Brian Wilson goes, it's my birthday today. They're going to let me have cake. And, he, and that was that. <laughs> he said, I walked away. It was like, sometimes as Larry Ritter, my old friend uh, who wrote um, The Glory of Their Times or compiled The Glory of Their Times, which is the greatest book about dead ball uh, ever. He said, don't meet your heroes. Um, because he'd met Bill Terry and um, Bill Terry was a superstar in the 20s and 30s with the New York Giants and Bill Terry said something horribly racist to him and Larry Ritter was like oh why did I do that he goes all the ball players you gotta meet Bill Memphis Bill right Bill Terry was such a badass that he took a year off professional baseball in the late 20s because he could make more money playing for an oil company team and he told the manager of the New York Giants to go fuck himself and to turn down the $3,000 a year or whatever it was in 1928 and to tell a, a professional team to go fuck themselves and then came back I remember seeing him at Candlestick Park, man. They put it up on the scoreboard. Bill Terry was the last National League player to hit 400 in 1930. And I remember the people next to us went, Bill Terry? Who the fuck's Bill Terry? And there he was, 100 years old. But Larry Ritter said to me, don't meet your heroes, which isn't always true because I've met a couple that have been extraordinary. And that's what brings me to the Negro Leagues Hall of Game Awards. Um, last year, we got to meet Maury Wills. And um, Maury Wills, a, a lot of black players... Um, are deemed controversial because um, sports writers are white. It, there, end of story. Uh, Barry Bonds, for instance, although Barry Bonds wasn't probably as polite as he might have been when he was a superstar. Uh, Maury Wills is always deemed controversial. Um, having met him, I can't say he was anything but an absolutely gorgeous gentleman with an, an total recall of every moment of his career, how he stole his approach to the game, um, his gratitude toward Jackie Robinson, and the fact that he knew Jackie and that when he was 15 when Jackie broke in. And he said growing up as a teenager in D.C., the fact that Jackie broke in meant the world to him, that he could have another world besides playing in segregated ball. Um, and we also had Tony Perez, who's an extraordinary slugger uh, in the actual Cooperstown Hall of Fame as well. Dave Stewart, who got the Jackie Robinson Award. Um, Al Oliver, who's not in the Hall of Fame, kind of the white managers and owners didn't let him play the last three years. He, he would have had 3,000 hits, which would have made him a shoe-in. And Lee Smith, who has 400 saves and isn't in the Hall of Fame, and I'm forgetting one of them. No, I'm not. That's all of them. And um, Lee Arthur Smith. They were just magnificent gentlemen. We also met Mudcat Grant, which brings me to this year's awards. There's not going to be a Jackie Robinson Award. They were going to give to Sharon Robinson but she's not well enough to attend. So instead, they're issuing the award this year, and they're going to give one out next year, and they're having five ball players instead. So they're having Mudcat Grant, the first black man to win um, a World Series game in the American League. He also won 20 games in the American League, and he also, in game six, hit a three-run homer um, off the Dodgers. Uh, Dick Allen, who's also considered controversial, um, at the beginning of the career, Richie, until they told everybody to quit calling him Richie. Um, rookie of the year, 1964. J.R. Richard, who threw harder than I think anyone who ever played. Six foot eight, wow. 220 pounds, um, right-hander with devastating speed. Um, threw 300 strikeouts two years in a row. Then had a terrible stroke, um, which was misdiagnosed by the Astros and uh, has come back and been a beautiful, beautiful person as career Cut short uh, by physical difficulties. Kenny Lofton, who played for the Cleveland's 11 teams. I can't go through all his teams. We'll be here all night. But notably, uh, the 95 Cleveland's, um, the Braves, and um, the 2002 Giants, with whom he hit a devastating pennant-winning single into right field. And I was there. So I'll be boring him to death in the corner. If you wish to come to the Call of Game Awards, you can see me corner Kenny Lofton and make him sign my Giants souvenir book. Eddie Murray will also be there, who might be, I don't know, one of the greatest players of all time. Um, Eddie Murray played first, uh, notably for Baltimore and the Dodgers. And Jennifer and I were at a game where he hit a home run from the right side in the third inning and then a home run from the left side in the eighth inning. So he had what they call mad skills. 
Um, that'll be exciting. That's on the ninth. In the daytime, there's a press call. At the nighttime, there's a, a presentation in the Gem Theater. It's quite brief, by the way. It's only an hour and something. So, you know, don't have a cow. And that will be coming out as a podcast on the Monday or maybe Tuesday when I get it to Ryan. Um, then the 11th will be at the ACLU membership conference, membership, membership will be at the ACLU thing in Washington, DC, uh, Cecile Richards and John Lewis are going to speak. And then we're doing our podcast right after that, which ought to be pretty exciting. Um, and that one will come out the Monday after that. Then I'll be in Edmonton with Colin Mockridge and Provaganza that sold out. So don't even think about it. Um, and that's a big week of improv. If you're an improv person, um, you know, my feeling is why not prepare something funny? But uh, if you like improv, there, there's going to be a million Canadian improvisers there. And they've uh, asked me to sit in with Colin. So me and Colin are going to do an hour uh, on the 14th. And that'll be good fun. So don't ask me if I miss Colin. And don't ask me if I ever work with him because the answer is yes. Oh, by the way, Whose Line starts Monday when this drops. Uh, Monday night is an hour of Whose Line on the CW. I know. What's the CW? It's this network where they used to have a bunch of vampire shows. And there's, there's a lot of supernatural type stuff going on on the CW. We're going to be on, I think it's at 8 o'clock. I don't know. Look, check your local listings or whatever they say anymore. Uh, but it's an hour. They're, they're back to back. Um, when did you tape them? A while ago. But they're still as fresh as the day we tend them. This is the new, this is the new season. And all your friends will be there. Uh, Ryan, Colin, Wayne, Aisha, me, Brad, Jeff, um, Gary, uh, Heather, Johnny. Who am I missing? I'm missing somebody. Um, and then uh, uh, we'll be in um, West Virginia for the Vagical Mystery Tour. Um, that's on the 20th. The 19th, we're going to do a podcast from the uh, clinic in West Virginia. And then the 20th is a, a fine, fine, fine comedy show. Um with Liz Winstead, uh, Joelle Johnson, and me and others. And then coming back, I'm going to San Jose. I'll be in San Jose for the podcast on the 24th. The 22nd and the 23rd, I'll be doing stand-up. That's at the Improv, which is a groovy club, and just reminded me that I better email them. Uh, and then we'll be back at well, Bar Lubitsch in uh, January. January. Uh, we'll be back way before January. July, in fact. Uh, the 22nd of July. Uh, Ryan will be there. That's in West Hollywood. That's free. That's at 7.30. And then uh, uh, Burbank, then San Francisco, then back at Bar Lubitsch in August, um, then t d Dallas, Texas. It's actually Addison. I like how it says Addison Improv located in Dallas, Texas. I think you'll find they'd be surprised to know that it's in Dallas since they're in Addison. Uh, then we'll be at the Helium in Portland, then uh, Tacoma, Spokane, and that she don't lie, she don't lie, she don't lie, Spokane. Um, and yes, when I do it, people there go, it's, it's not Spokane, Greg. I'm like, I, I, I know. I don't care. Tacomia and Spokane. And then we'll be at Shakespeare and Company in Paris on December 11th. Who's Line at the Royal Albert Hall, December 15th and 16th. And the Soho Theater for podcast on the 17th, which is um, Monday. Monday the 17th, we'll be at the Soho Theater of December and then we'll be back at the punchline for New Year's. I've taken you through the whole year. You're wondering, when does the show start and why? Uh, well, it's a continuation of last week's show in Brooklyn where we had a great time at the Bell House. The temperature was over 400 degrees uh, at, the, at showtime. It was like going to a WWE event. Um, uh, and I've received a lot of emails uh, since that uh, podcast and thank you for sending me emails. FamilyFarGreg at gmail.com um, High point is in North Carolina, not South Carolina. And my favorite tweet, I think it was a tweet today, was like, oh, so I guess your hipster friends in Brooklyn didn't care to correct you. <laughs> well, first of all, if you're in the audience and you dare to yell out a correction on the night, I'm going to stomp you like a fucking starburst. And I'm going to stomp you like a fucking lemon one, the one no one likes. Please keep that in mind. He said eating a chocolate. I know where High Point is. I was high. I don't know. I don't have any excuse. The temperature in the room was so hot that my you can hear the steam singing from my ears. High Point's in North Carolina. It's home to the world's largest disappointment, which is a chest of drawers that's several stories tall and a statue to John Coltrane. And I believe his, his home is there as well. Not where he was born. He was born somewhere else in North Carolina. I can't remember where. I would adore to visit South Carolina. So if you have a gig there for me, please let me know. And uh, we'd, be, we'd love to go. What is it? Charleston? My grandfather lived in Bacon's Bridge outside of Charleston. I'm not kidding. My grandfather was um, Jewish and took the name E. Culpepper Proops. I wish I was fucking kidding, you guys. When I would get letters from him when I was little, we sent letters in those days. 
he had those stickers, you know, the little pre-made address labels. And it, his, his name was Everett Proops. And he went by E. Cole Pepper. I think he thought it made him blend in. <laughs> I don't think it did. He didn't look or talk any different. He looked like a uh, Brooklyn, and he talked like he was from Brooklyn. But he went by Culpepper. So when I play in West Virginia, I want you to call me Old Swanee Proops. Because <laughs> I'll, I'll be Shoeless Greg, I prefer. Because it was that time that I lost my dress shoes at a podcast, and I had to play in my socks. And that's why I picked up the nickname. Uh, let's see. Uh, gun protests. Yes, we were talking about that last time. I just wanted to kind of talk about how uh, successful um, they've been about uh, the teens, of course, about um, getting Publix uh, to back down. Uh, Publix, the chain, P-U-B-L-I-X, is it spelled horribly? Um, I also noticed that some of the Congress and Senate were taking on the Parkland kids as um, aides in their office, uh, which begs the question, where are the kids from Ferguson and uh, some of the other perhaps less white affairs. Um, it would behoove the Senate and the Congress to um, <clears throat> move forward on that. Shannon Watts um, is a, an advocate. She's the founder of Moms Demand. If you want to participate in gun control and the dissemination of information thereof and the retweeting thereof and the um, um, pushing that agenda forward, because as you can see, it's one that fits in clearly with the resistance and a progressive agenda in so much as you can see that the people who are supporting not having gun control tend to be um, Russian pawns and sociopaths. Um, Shannon Watts is at Shannon Watts at Mom's Demand, at Everytown, at Rise to Run, and at Emerge America are places that you might wish to go. Um, a young child asked um, Sarah Huckaboom today um, why um, people ha had to do um, drills for guns at schools, and she choked up and went into this big spiel, as she does. She, um, like Orange 45, is incapable of telling the truth, so it's really not important what she says a good deal of the time, because she's not going to say anything that's pertinent or that contains any morsels of veracity they're not in that business um they've been selling a fantasy for two and a half years now it's a weird 1950s uh, we're going to mow the lawn uh, um nice uh, uh, athletes are going to do what they're told um mexicans are going to leave the country um uh, muslims are, aren't americans everyone has to declare their whiteness everyone has to declare that they're american even if they've been here for generations even if they helped build the country even if they built the goddamn railroad um so she cried and um uh, one, someone on Twitter called them alligator tears, which I thought was hilarious because uh, crocodile tears are fake tears, but alligator tears are aggressive tears of fabrication. Um, you can look it up. It's in the New York Times lexicon. It's, alligator tears are right under Cayman crybabies and uh, <laughs> right above um, swamp critter fit, shit fits, snit fits. Um, this is from I want Teen Vogue. Teen dating violence is an indicator of gun violence. Um, it, I didn't want to go into the whole story. You can go to Teen Vogue and read it. Teen Vogue and Vogue are being very good about the Me Too movement and about um, gun violence. The truth is, these people who commit gun violence, these um, men who commit gun violence, often are abusers of women um, or are bearing a grudge against women or have a past of being violent against women. If you know someone who's in an abusive relationship, you can call Love is Respect. That's the name of it. L-O-V-E is Respect. Hotline 1-866-331-9474. 1-866-331-9474. The National Domestic Violence Hotline 1-800-799-7233. Or text Love is to 25, excuse me, Love is, L-O-V-E-I-S, two two five two two. Love is you text it to 22522. One Love Foundation provides more resources, information, and support. That's in Teen Vogue, if you want to look it up. The name of the article is Teen Dating Violence is an Indicator of Doug, of Gun Violence. Um, Vogue magazine uh, has an article um, this week uh, about um, Judge Aaron Persky. Judge Aaron Persky is the one who um, handed down the incredibly lenient sentence to... Um, Brock Turner, the rapist at Stanford University. They were going to put up a plaque at Stanford. Um, I'm not going to read you the article. It's long and it's detailed. But um, basically the point is 
they got over 90,000 signatures in Santa Clara County to recall him. So judges can be recalled and it's a giant step forward um, in getting people like him off the bench that you recall the rationale he had for not punishing Brock Turner was Brock Turner had been punished enough because he had a promising athletic career and therefore he should be allowed to do what he wished with women. They're going to put a little um, plaque up um, for the victim that said, I'm okay on it, which is what she said to her sister. Um, and Stanford's been super fucking huffy about it and not wanting to put it up. And uh, there's a quote in the article that I recall off the top of my head, which was, um, we're at the point still where Stanford's acting like, what can she do for them? So um, know that these things are uh, scandalous and that they're going on. Tammy Duckworth, who is a hero, a mother, a senator from Illinois, and uh, an, a decorated veteran, you may notice that that's different than some of the other people in power who work at the White House, who are neither heroes, nor veterans, nor mothers, nor anything. Sorry, Melania. Melania's a mother. Um, uh, she had this quote about what's going on in the NFL this week. As you know, Orange 45 went on Fox News and said that if the NFL players don't want to kneel, maybe they should leave the country. Um, we would call that rendition, which is another form of slavery. Um, asking people to leave the country because they disagree with your opinion is... Um, a titanically racist thing to say so much more racist than say what a sitcom star might tweet and uh, she received more punishment than he's ever received Tammy Duckworth said this one day our nation's flag will drape my coffin just as it did my dad's and will my husband's and brothers they're all veterans I will also always stand on these legs for the flag and anthem but it was also my honor to defend people's right to free speech what are you gonna do um, I love her for that and she's so bloody awesome I'm going to stay on the NFL thing for just a little bit more here I know a lot of you aren't sports fans but it's real real important to have this discussion since um, the NFL is um, largely populated by black people the National Football League and almost to a person owned by white people uh, this is from the undefeated which is a very good sports site and by the way Dave Zirin uh, and Jamel Hill are the people to read on this. I don't think people should be staying in the locker rooms, uh, 45 told Fox News. You have to stand proudly or you shouldn't be playing. You shouldn't be here. Maybe you shouldn't be in the country. Trump probably was never going to back off. And now the league has gifted him a political victory. We can all set our watch for the moment when he's before a salivating audience boasting he got the NFL to kneel. That, among uh, many things, is what makes the NFL's decision to enact a national anthem policy so spineless and weak. The league should have left well enough alone since very few players were protesting by the end of last season and there was no indication there'd be players protesting this season. Well, that's not going to happen. Besides, if it wanted to send a message that there were consequences to protesting, the message had already been sent through Kaepernick and Eric Reed, who both remain unsigned in the wake of being the primary engineers behind the protests. They created a new controversy, more animosity, negative headlines. Some will argue the NFL was merely being proactive, but all it did was further expose how out of touch it is and prove the merits of Kaepernick and Reed's collusion cases against them. By the way, that hasn't come to court yet, but um, Reed and uh, Colin Kaepernick are suing the NFL for colluding to keep them from playing as they are top players. The NFL is losing its foothold with millennial viewers who, not surprisingly, aren't as interested in sitting down and committing three hours to a sport that can't even define what a catch is. 36% uh, of Gen X fans identified as being committed to watch NFL compared to 27% of millennials, blah, 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 blah. This is what I wanted to get to. Steve Kerr, who's awesome and is a coach in the NBA and has had quite a lot to say about Orange 45. I think it's just typical of the NFL. They're just playing to their fan base, basically trying to use the anthem as fake patriotism, nationalism, scaring people. It's idiotic. But that's how the NFL's handled their business. I'm proud to be in a league that understands patriotism in America is about free speech, about peacefully protesting. And I think our leadership in the NBA understands that when the NFL players were kneeling, they were kneeling to protect protest police brutality, to protest racial inequality. They weren't disrespecting the flag or the military. That's Jamel Hill. She was the controversial one who said that Trump was racist and ESPN got all fruity with her. Um, she wrote uh, that piece and um, of course he's completely right it is idiotic um, this is a piece by in Teen Vogue and it's by Jess Valeni Jill, Jill Philippic sorry um, some club presidents out 
There's a racial hierarchy built in the NFL. While most NFL players are black, 90% of the team owners and three quarters of the coaches are white. The majority of principal owners are white. White owners and our white president want black players to perform according to their wishes. When the performance leaves players with traumatic brain, traumatic brain, brain injuries, it's their choice to do with their bodies. But when players choose to kneel, hold on. It's the owners who demand decision-making power of what players do with their bodies and how they express their political views. She also makes a giant point out of all the people who've been accused of sexual assault. In today's NFL, kneeling gets you fined. The consequences can be less serious if you're accused of raping or beating a woman. Um, That's what's going on in the NFL. It's very difficult for me to get it up for it right now and to be enthusiastic about it. Um, You have to do what you have to do. But understand that this is completely racially motivated and it's another way to keep control um, over a segment of the society that's well represented in the media and that has money and is reasonably successful. That is to say, black professional athletes. Now, getting back to the NFL and uh, the NBA ever so briefly, we're not done with the playoffs yet, which are between the Cleveland Cavaliers with LeBron James and my beloved Warriors with Steph Curry and them all. You may remember last year, my beloved Warriors won the NBA championship and did not go to the White House. Instead, they went to a hospital in Washington, D.C. and visited children. And as you know, uh, LeBron James has made his feelings real clear about the White House. So um, the NBA doesn't play that. And it's pretty amazing considering they're as corporate and as white guy owned as any group of um, a giant entertainment complex. Um, Jill Philippic said this, The commissioner said the new policy will keep our focus on the game and the extraordinary athletes who play it and on our fans who enjoy it. Absolutely, completely not true in any way. And I mean, wow, this is like reading Alice in Wonderland. I say what I mean and I mean what I say, said the queen. Uh, In reality, the new policy keeps the NFL's focus where it's always been on money alone. Even if that means curtailing players free expression and certainly when it requires doing little to penalize assault and abuse well put um the article about the judge persky is called rape cultures on the ballot in california that's in this week's vogue uh let's see here since we're on this tip starbucks took it upon themselves to reorient everyone at their business today um or rather this week the um ceo of starbucks is named um howard schultz he's the executive chairman and uh, he's nobody's humanitarian let's be very honest here Um, but he said this on the news, if the white house and the president would view through the lens of humanity, the policies I think are so important to the future of the country. Uh, let's see here. Uh, orange 45 took credit for black unemployment falling to the lowest reported level since 72. And he tweeted lowest black unemployment in history exclamation point in February. Of course, uh, Schultz pushed back. You think when you have 5 million young Americans, opportunity youth not in school, many of whom are people in color, 45% of households in America that don't have $400 from an emergency, when you have a mental health crisis in America, when you have a homeless crisis, let's go a different way. He also said, and I love this, um, that uh, President Trump's rhetoric on race is partly to blame for the country's racial divide. You think? When it's reached a white person like that, I think um, maybe uh, and the the shitstorm that happened at the Starbucks in Rittenhouse Square, uh, uh, where two, as you recall, um, young gentlemen were hanging out for less than two minutes before the police were called on them. Hurricane Maria, um, David Begno and Harvard University um, went door to door and spent a great deal of money in uh, Puerto Rico and knocked on people's doors and said, has anyone died at your house? And they've come up with a new survey, a university study by Harvard, who spent tens of thousands of dollars to do this. This isn't some random thing. This isn't something we're making up. David Begno, the reporter from CBS, who's covered the story since day jump. Hurricane Maria has killed more than 4,600 people in Puerto Rico, 70 times the official toll. The White House lied and said the death toll which it still stands out, by the way, as of this um, podcast, 64. There's a great big difference between 4,600 people dead, by the way, dead, not casualties, not um, trying to recover, not in hospital, as we say in England, but deceased. Um, The neglect and the terror, the horror, and um, the absolute malfeasance and 
negligence of this administration um, is the, one of the most shocking things that I've ever experienced in my lifetime. I can't even remember. If you remember on the day he went down there or a couple days after and went, hey, this is worse, not as bad as Katrina. Um, the facts keep stacking up and it's awful. Of course, you can give uh, to Puerto Rico and never, ever, ever let your elected officials know that this isn't the worst thing ever and that he should have been impeached for this immediately. And when he threw the towels at them, that was a moment beyond um, all experts. My, by the way, I'm getting this wrong, but hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans have left. I don't know the actual figure. This I'm making up. I want to say it's close to half a million, but I think I'm exaggerating there. It's over a quarter of a million million, um, have left Puerto Rico. Not to mention the fact that there's uh, thousands of people there with no electricity still, with no water still, with no running water still, with no toilet facilities, with no medicine. I take an eye drop for a condition I have. And the eye drop factory is in Puerto Rico and I cannot receive my eye drops now and have to go an alternate route. I am a privileged white guy living in Los Angeles, although I'm spending some time here at Melania's Porpoise of Fruititude. Um, So the effects of it are knocked on and astounding to everyone. I'm not saying that I've suffered at all. I'm just saying that they've lost their capacity to produce the medical supplies, which are a big part of their economy. They've lost a good deal of the people that were living in the country. Also, depression has taken hold. And as you recall, there are riots going on about money in the banks there. What we've done to them, and by the way, they're part of America. Um, They are a commonwealth of our country. Harvard researchers said interviews conducted in Puerto Rico suggested a 60% increase in mortality in the three months after the storm. They contacted 3,000 randomly selected households between January and March and asked about displacement, infrastructure loss, and causes of death. Were the deaths preventable? Many Puerto Ricans we spoke to felt their immense suffering after the hurricane had been trivialized and the emergency response had been lackluster. A relatively small number may have been killed in the physical impact, but six months later we met people who lost relatives as a result of interrupted medical care and saw others struggling to pay for expensive generators on which they were running vital life support equipment. There was also reported to have been a spike in suicides, many without homes and thousands who'd been living without electricity since the day Hurricane Maria struck. Um, It is a scandal. You can go to charitynavigator.org and give them money to try to help those poor, um, unfortunate people who've been completely um, forgotten um, because the um, the insanity has to continue um, from Orange 45 because it is insanity. Let's be real, real clear about this. This whole, oh, he fabricates things and he doesn't know what's real and therefore we can't call everything he says a lie and therefore he's not responsible for it. That's all nonsense. Um, he's senseless. He doesn't make any sense. And everyone's putting up with this for um, the various reasons they have. They're either taking Russian money or they want their own racist agenda to carry on forever and ever. Um, But the whole idea that he has anything to say or that he's going to um, understand an issue. Um, He met with Kim Kardashian today about prison reform. I really don't know where else to go on that one. um, it's, it's, a, it's an insane state of affairs. So um, staying on them is the best thing uh, we can do. Um, if you want to uh, read about uh, what he talked about at his rally um, in Nashville the other day, because he doesn't give press conferences, he just goes out and sort of spews this weird Goebbels-esque um, white supremacist dog whistle it's not really a dog whistle. It's as clear as can be. There's no more code anymore. Um, his face gets flushed and he, he called his hands big, beautiful hands last night. That's what I mean about him not being compass menace. And I don't mean like he's insane, like um, a gibbering idiot. I mean, this is a calculated maneuver by the Republicans to put someone forward who hasn't the slightest grasp of policy or empathy or anything like that. Um, he started at the beginning of the, uh, the Daniel Dale writes for the Toronto star and has been an intrepid reporter and does nothing but tell the truth. And what Daniel Dale has done over the last year and a half and during the election, he did it as well is call out every single lie. Daniel Dale's frustration with the media is that they print stuff from orange 45. They'll quote it in the papers. They'll quote it on TV and they won't just say that's a lie. It's not true. They just print it like he's just saying it and it's part and parcel of what's going on. Why is this an issue? I hear you cry. Because it normalizes this insanity. Um, and 
it normalizes the racism and it normalizes the hate speak and it normalizes all of this. And it doesn't need to be normalized. Um, it needs to be called out every second. I'm still in retention of a good deal of my faculties. Some of them have dissipated and others have denigrated. But um, I understand that when uh, the supposed leader of the free world um, won't give a press conference, but will go to rallies still, where he's still playing the same greatest hits from when he was running. Um, there was Locker Up, whatnot. Um, 8, 11 p.m., I love country music, he said. Now, that's not something that I can tell you is a certifiable lie, but I'm going to tell you that's a certifiable lie. He's from New York. He's never listened to country music in his life. He was in Nashville. He's aware of two things, that he was in Nashville and that that's where Music City USA is, where country music came from. So he started with I Love Country Music. He does not love country music. I dare you to go through his iPod, um, which has like, you know, Hitler's speeches on it and Bishop Fulton Sheen and uh, David Duke's Greatest Hits and Philip Schaffley reading the Bible backwards. And, you know, it's got a lot of great stuff on it. I'll grant you that. George Lincoln Rockwell um, giving a Nazi, you know, salute. Um, and find some country music on there. I want you to find some Charlie Pride on Orange 45's fucking iPod. And then 8.15, four minutes later. Oh, uh, 8.14. He talks about how people said he could never earn the 270 electoral votes he needed, but then he did. Well, he did because now we know there was collusion. Um, James Clapper has said as much. Um, he only won by 70,000 votes in four states. 8.15, about the reporters. There they are, right back there. They're fake, they're fake. Crowd booze. Look how many of them. Look how many. Oh boy, that's a lot of people back there. That's a lot of people. Fake news. So the idea that he's presenting any new information, that he has any concept of what's going on, that there's any discernible interest in illuminating or uh, moving forward with any kind of progress in this country, that he's got a plan of any kind, you've got to let that go. He doesn't. It isn't. It's not happening. Um, we're going to carry on with the same destructive nonsense. Um, and this is uh, just fantastic. The new embassy. We opened it. It is totally beautiful. The finest stones, the finest marbles, the best location. It's open. Is this an Applebee's? What do you mean the finest marbles? It's open. It's open. What the devil are you talking about? Um, a recent improvement in the U.S. space program. You see what's happening with NASA. See those rocket ships starting to go up again. What? What rocket ships? This is all the delusional, maniacal, crazy. Um, he means the SpaceX private company that's separate from NASA. Those are the rockets that have been going up. There haven't been any NASA rockets going up, but he sees them going up and you see them too. And then this is how he closed. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America strong again. We will make America safe again. Hmm? I, yeah, it's just wild. He said, we've never been this respected. I couldn't find the quote, but I remember it. And it was awesome beyond measure. Um, I, I think you'll find, um, yeah, that's not really happening. Uh, the state of Virginia has, re uh, the Senate in Virginia has passed um, Medicare, one of 33 states to, states to do so. The assembly is going to vote on it tonight. By the time we, uh, this comes out to you, you'll have known about it. Um, what does this tell you? You may remember the hotly contested election in Virginia. It means that every vote is important and that you must run for office and that you must um, take your voting rights seriously. You must register to vote. If you know people who aren't registered to vote, you have to register them. If you And you can do it online. In the state of California, you can do it online. Um, and on election day, it's really important to get people to the polls, whether you walk them there, whether you take, give them a ride. Um, that's something that can't be stressed enough. There are more of us than there are of them. And uh, I mean that in the most Orange 45 Ian way possible. Believe me, there are more of us. Many people have been saying that. Many of us, we're very good. We want to make America uh, great again. And by great again, we mean getting rid of Betsy DeVos and Scott Pruitt and Mike Pence and their homophobia and their nastiness. And there's one way to do it. And that state, by a bloody state, Every single house in every single seat in the House of Representatives, 435 seats in Congress is up and every single governorship. That's all you need to know. It can change in the blink of an eye. Uh, Eric Greitens, speaking of sociopaths, um, is going to resign from being governor of Missouri. I was there in Missouri a month ago. Thank you. Everybody applauds. But I heard Melania, a chair from the other room. I think she said, uh, um, 
she doesn't speak well she might speak russian uh, uh, uh i was there when governor greitens was under fire as you know he's a um someone who's been accused of sexual assault and also major corruption towards his own campaign he's finally finally stepping down he thought he was going to run for national office he was a prodigy of mike pence he's one of these lantern-jawed white guys with silver hair who thinks because he wears an open collar and really talks tough that he's got something going on but what he's got going on is that he's an abusive sociopath and there's an awesome article from the daily beast and i rarely say that by matt lewis who's quite a good writer who wrote eric greitens proves it again politics attracts sociopaths um and then fox news because i want to be fair and balanced this is from fox news from two days ago Missouri Governor Greitens resigning amid sexual misconduct scandal. If you want, you can watch the Shep Smith reporting show on Fox News, where Shep Smith, of all the reporters on Fox News, actually dispenses facts and says things like, there's Russian collusion. It's not a witch hunt. There's four convictions and three guilty pleas and 2019 indictments, whatever. Uh... Uh, So that's going on. It's so important to vote in your elections, especially the local ones. And it's important for you to run. If you're a woman, she should run. If you're a young person, it's run for something. Uh, And Emily's list uh, for all women, they really do help people um, run um, for office in this country. And it makes a gigantic, huge difference. Um, You've been hearing about the ICE agents and what's been going on with them. The 1,500, 5,000 was it? Did I get the number wrong? Lost children. 1,500 misplaced children. Um, it's not unusual for the government to lose people, believe it or not. But the, the absolute horror of having children taken from their parents at the border reminds us of something. What would that be? Mm, let's just see. Um, it reminds you of the uh, Lande regime in Chile. It reminds you of uh, what happened in um, the Balkans in the 90s. Um, and it reminds you of what happened during World War II and the Holocaust when gypsies and Jews and gays and artists and Russia remind you of Cambodia in the 70s when children are taken from their parents and put in separate camps. Um, that's what that is. Um, Jennifer and I years ago saw a play called Ashes to Ashes by Harold Pinter, who had a lot to say on the subject, several plays about this very topic, all of which were symbolic and metaphorical because Pinter never addressed things head on. He wasn't the San Francisco mime troupe. He used a lot more, although the San Francisco mime troupe is brilliant and uses allegory, um, Pinter always used metaphor. And in Ashes to Ashes, a woman who's clearly been the victim and lover of a fascist torturer, Um, is asked by the other man in the room while they're having a quiet drink. This is a British play, you understand. This is how the British work things out. They sit in a room and they get drunk and they confess to each other. They never do this, actually, but in literature, this is how they work it out in a play. And um, he says, what was his job? And the female character says, what was his job? And he says, yes, what did he do? And her answer is, and I went and got this because I wanted to get it word for word. Because this is what this reminds me of with these ICE agents. He used to go to the local railway station and walk down the platform and tear all the babies from the arms of their screaming mothers. When we saw the play, the place went completely quiet. There was a discussion of the play afterward, which some of the audience members didn't quite understand what was happening. Um, This is the beginning of um, uh, genocide. This is the beginning of a Holocaust. When a group is singled out, this would be brown people, Latin people, also brown Muslim people, but in this instance, brown Latin people. Um, They are made the other. Um, The MSA 13, according to Orange 45, are animals. He declared at his um, Nuremberg-type rally yesterday that Nancy Pelosi was an MS-13 lover. Um... This is what happens when you start to dehumanize people. It's important to understand that semantic distinction. When you start to dehumanize people by calling them animals, um, the next thing that comes after that is unlimited brutality. Um, I have written in my notes here, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Mark Zuckerberg. I think it was because I was going to comment on all of them this week. Elon Musk is no more trustworthy than um, any other billionaire who has no idea what's going on in the world. When he starts to demonize the press because they disagree with things he says, it's famous 
that he talks to women reporters, they tweet about him, and that's where the anger lies. Yes, he sent a bitch and car into space. If he really wanted to help the world, he could give some money to Flint, Michigan. Let's just start there. Um, Jeff Bezos um, is doing some work by having um, a stake in the Washington Post. However, the people that work for him, it's well known, um, are abused at Amazon. They don't receive enough money. They have long hours. Just as they are at Tesla. And, oh, and thank you, Jennifer, at at Elon Musk's uh, company, Tesla. These are not benign people. Mark Zuckerberg um, took part in an enormously damaging deception, took money from the Russians, and ran every kind of fake site in the world during the election, and then is now finally apologizing and had to go in front of the British Parliament and try to explain himself. By the way, he has not been fined, nor has he been threatened with a fine, nor has he been threatened with jail for doing something that if you or I did would be called treason, I think. Um, uh, In any case, I just wanted to touch on those um, people because they're often held up as paragons of uh, entrepreneurial spirit and they're all white guys. Um, And I think that is... It's important to remember uh, who you can trust and who you can't trust. Are you saying you can't trust any white guys? I'm saying I would look with a jaundiced eye at white guys. Are you going to hammer on Bezos like um, Trump does and uh, Bernie? No, I'm not. I don't think you hammer on people who are entrepreneurs. I think you try to hold them to some sort of accountability. If you want to be charitable, pay your taxes. It really starts there. I don't want you to start a big fund or a big, a big splashy thing or I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Just stop going offshore. Pay the people who work for you a living wage. And if you're Mark Zuckerberg, hire a woman or a person of color to to write code. Nobody who works at Facebook, I mean, the the percentage is ridiculous. Uh, Let's see here. One more good news story, and then we're going to... Well, we're going down to West Virginia. Um, There's been a terrible decision in Iowa. The Supreme Court made a decision today about Arkansas and abortion, or rather a non-decision. Um, it was uh, an anti-abortion law in Arkansas was given the green light by the Supreme Court. This was Tuesday, effectively ending medication-induced abortions and closing two of the state's three abortion clinics. This is what happens when you let them take control. This is what happens when you let them seat people on the Supreme Court. You get these kind of crap decisions. Um, this is going to take a lot of work to get undone, um, but we can do it. Um, uh, there was a survey today. This is from Think Progress. Seven in 10 Americans support Roe versus Wade. New data shows low support for banning abortion across all U.S. states. So they're doing this in the face of that. Um, when it's 70% of the people in the country who want abortion to be safe and legal, what closing abortion clinics does is forces women to get illegal abortions or an undue burden on them to travel to places that have legal abortions. I've heard your argument. I don't want to hear it. Um, you saw what happened this week with the man they're calling the Molly Spider-Man. He climbed up an apartment building uh, in Paris and saved a, a small boy dangling from a balcony. Uh, he was cheered on by spectators as he pulled himself from balcony to balcony. You can see it online if you want to go to BBC News or any different website. His name is Mr. Kasama. He arrived in France last year taking the long and dangerous journey to Europe via a boat over the Mediterranean to Italy, which, by the way... Hundreds of people have died this year. Thousands have died this year on that terrible journey. He got to meet with the prime minister, Mr. Macron, and he said, I didn't have time to think. I ran across the road to save him. Firefighters arrived to find the child had already been rescued. Um, He met with Macron. um, The father, let's see here. Um, Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo was among those to praise the 22-year-old's heroism and called to thank him. She called him the Spider-Man of the 18th because that's the Aaron Dismal he was in. This is from The Guardian. Paris Spider-Man joins fire brigade after citizenship is fast-tracked. Mamadou Gosama, the 22-year-old Malian, hailed as being a hero for saving a child from a balcony, has been granted legal immigration status and has joined the French fire brigade. Now, there's a happy ending to a bloody story about a wonderful immigrant man who is quite fit and did something that um, we would all like to think that we would do, which was the right thing. Um, His immigration papers were fast-tracked last Tuesday. He went to a fire station and signed up for a 10-month internship with the Fire and Rescue Services, which will pay him, it's very paltry, um, 600 euros a month. But it's an internship, mind you. So we're looking forward on this. Without legal documents in France, he'd been sleeping on a floor of a residence for migrants in Montreuil outside Paris. 
um, rolling on a thin mattress each night and packing up in the morning, sharing a cramped room with six others and unable to get work legally. Patrick Besak, the mayor of Montreux, praised his bravery and said, I'm proud to see migrants being seen as enriching our society. Is that a different tune? Now, mind you, uh, immigrants in France probably aren't treated with as much respect as they might be. And certainly they're having um, thousands of people come swimming across the Mediterranean at risk of their own lives. Um, but at least it was a, a delightful, upbeat story this week and shows that everyone in the world uh, isn't uh, without empathy. The Washington Post, Debbie Johnson Roundtree was 104 years old. This is not a tragedy. It's the triumph of a long culmination of a lifetime. Debbie Johnson Roundtree as a Washington criminal defense lawyer and courtroom warrior for civil rights, um, a critical early role in the desegregation of interstate bus travel, and mentored several generations of black lawyers. Uh, she was in Charlotte. Uh, half a century in the legal profession, she defended predominantly poor African-American clients, black churches, community groups, and the occasional politician. Her best-known case involved the black day laborer accused in 64 of killing a Georgetown socialite and painter, Mary Pinchot Meyer, who reportedly had had an affair with JFK. She won him an acquittal, despite what was a, uh, appeared to be damning witness testimony. Um, Robert Bennett, who observed the proceedings as a clerk and judge and decades later represented President Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky sandals, said about her, she had a motherly warmth and a low-key casual style that appealed not only to the mind, but the hearts and souls of the jurors. Um, she had a book, uh, uh, Nina Burley wrote a book about her called A Very Private Woman. She explained the case had additional significance for her because the defendant, Raymond Crump Jr., was a black man who was accused of murdering a white woman. I think in the black community, there was a feeling that even if Crump was innocent, he was a dead duck. Even if he didn't do it, he's guilty. I took that as a personal challenge. I was caught up in civil rights, heart, body, and soul, but I felt law was the one vehicle that would bring remedy. We all have to hold on to that. And how wonderful Debbie Johnson was about this. She mentored Charles Ogletree Jr., who became a professor at Harvard Law School, preached at South Southeast Washington's Allen Chapel Church, where she worked as a minister for 35 years. Um, she has a biography that you can read by Katie McCabe called Justice Older Than the Law. According to Katie McCabe, Ms. Roundtree, Debbie, transformed the legal canvas in Washington by demonstrating a black lawyer could win major cases before white judges and predominantly white juries. Her first legal partner in her, Julius Winfield Robertson, began taking cases in the 50s when there were few black lawyers and fewer black female lawyers. Uh... Those who did practice were banned from using the cafeteria, restrooms, or library, law library at the district courthouse in D.C., and legal organizations such as the Women's Bar, which uh, Ms. Roundtree integrated in 62, had whites-only policies. African clients who brought personal injury or negligent suits were euphemistically referred uptown, directed to white lawyers who had a better chance of winning. And then they were paid a fee by the white lawyers for bringing them those clients. She kept her clients in the office and said, we work for eggs and collard greens. She noted her and her partner often accepted clients who couldn't pay legal fees. Um, and sometimes they had second jobs. And this one is the case I wanted you to hear about. In 1952, they were introduced to a woman's army corps private named Sarah Keyes. Earlier that year, Keyes had been traveling home to North Carolina in uniform on furlough when she refused a bus driver's orders to give up her seat to a white Marine. In sense, the driver moved all the passengers but Keys to a new bus in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. When Keys asked why she was not allowed on board, she was arrested by two police officers, jailed for 13 hours, and fined $25 for disorderly conduct. Ms. Roundtree and Robertson tried the case unsuccessfully at district court. And then uh, the now defunct Interstate Commerce Commission. The 11-member commission acquired a reputation for the Supreme Court of the Confederacy for consistently ruling in favor of segregation. The Supreme Court's 54 Brown v. Board of Education was unconstitutional, gave Ms. Roundtree hope. Initially, they found that it did not preclude segregation in private business, but she succeeded in applying pressure through Adam Clayton Powell, who was a famous black congressperson. In 1955, they agreed assignment of seats in interstate buses so designed as to imply the inferiority of a traveler solely based on race or color was unjust and dis discrimination. The ICC gave states and bus companies six weeks to desegregate as well as waiting rooms and restrooms. Station restaurants were not essentially connected to travel and could remain segregated. How's that grab you? Um, that case 
is so important, like Rosa Parks, like Jackie Robinson, like the other 11 black women uh, that had cases like that. At Howard, she assisted NAACP lawyers Thugood Marshall, you may have heard of him, and James M. Nebert Jr. in their preparations for Brown versus the Board of Education. People do poorly by and for themselves, she told the Post. I make my clients my children, and I can see stars where there's nothing but clay. Debbie Johnson is an irreplaceable part of America. Uh, Tony Kinman uh, is swirling in the stars. Uh, Tony Kinman was in a group called The Dills, and then later uh, Cowboy Nation recently. Um, but the group, yes, Jennifer, uh, you saw Rank and File. Where did you see them at Mabuhay? At the, on Broadway, I saw The Dills at the map. Oh, did you saw the Dills? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, my cousin Donnie gave me a record of the Dills. Uh, anyway, they uh, were a unique punk group in so much as they started as a punk group and then kind of went into a country bag, but not the kind of country bag, not um, a white rednecky country bag. Uh, they moved to Austin. They moved to San Francisco because they couldn't get gigs in San Diego, which is hilarious. That was in the 70s. Um, he had a very deep voice and his brother was in the band with him as well. Um, they created Rank and File. Uh, according to this, the LA Times, an influential band that wedded the narrative storytelling lyrics and twangy musical textures of country with the raw power and take no prisoners attitude of punk. Um, Blackbird, Cowboy Nation, duo performances and Chip's latest band, the punk blues group, fantastically named Ford Maddox Ford. Um, they were still collaborating. Uh, Tony Kinman is kind of an irreplaceable part uh, and goes along, I think, with that great California tradition of Merle Haggard and... Um, Buck Owens and the awesome California sound. Uh, yes, he started as a punk artist, but uh, made his way into uh, Americana, as they say. Uh, we'll see you next time down the road. You've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. Melania, thank you for letting us be here. Maggie, put the canapes on. May every page you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that rings for you be a cool papa bow. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very loud. A good head.